The story told in the biblical book of Exodus is a powerful one. It tells of a people enslaved by a brutal dictator, of their relationship with their God, a relationship that gave them hope and courage to face the harshness of life, and of their liberation from captivity. It tells of years wandering in the desert after liberation, years that allowed the people to create a unique identity rooted in covenant with their God. In the book of Exodus, we learn that the holy in the universe is on the side of those who are oppressed. We learn that power concedes nothing without a demand. And we learn in the words of Bishop Desmond Tutu that liberation is costly. Liberation is costly to those who are oppressed. It demands a singular focus. It demands persistence as systems that took generations to build are slowly dismantled. It demands strength from within to keep enough hope that the work that needs to be done seems doable and not an impossible task. Liberation is also costly to those who are complicit with the oppression or those who are coerced or forced into defending it. The story in Exodus is not a happy one. It is not a bloodless revolution or a sudden revelation to those in power. The story in Exodus is a grisly, violent story of extreme measures taken by an angry God against not only the cruel and vicious Pharaoh, but also all of the people of Egypt, whether or not they had any power to help the Israelites escape from bondage. It's hard I will admit for me to believe in any sort of God that would do the things recounted in Exodus, even to free people from slavery. Dan Clendenin, the author of Journey with Jesus, in reflecting on the story of Exodus, writes, Liberation from oppression is a good thing and always worthy of celebration. But the writer of Exodus construes Israel's emancipation to include Egyptian subjugation. The writer insists that the revenge was the very act of God himself. God will slay the firstborn of every Egyptian. From the highest in Pharaoh's house to the lowliest prisoner languishing in a dank dungeon, even including the firstborn of Egyptian livestock. The story of Exodus is a powerful one. It is a sacred story to the Jewish people. It is the story of their ancestors, a story that Jews are instructed they must retell in the annual celebration of Pesach, Passover, the celebration of which began last night. And yet, it is also a story that transcends one particular place and time. It is no accident that African slaves in the Americas, when introduced to the Christian religion, latched on to the story of Exodus, the story of Moses leading his people out of slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. Enslaved people on this shore found in that story some hope for their own future. In singing about Moses and the liberation of the Israelites, they reminded themselves of their relationship to a God who was on their side. And in that God, they found the strength to live another day. 
It is no accident that the oppressed peoples of South Africa find meaning in the story of Exodus, even after the end of the brutal apartheid regime that ruled their nation for so many decades, even after their liberation, their freedom, had been secured. A mere change in government there could not undo centuries of oppression, and so the people of South Africa continue to look for inspiration to the story of Exodus, a story of wandering in the desert for 40 years, a story of hardship and of want, and of a renewed covenant with God through the forging of a new identity. And so today we honor the story of Exodus for its historical significance as well as for its applicability to the modern day. In thinking about how this story can speak to us in the present, it's possible to take many different paths. It's possible to explore the metaphorical ways in which all of us are restricted, in which the ways in which our spirits need to be liberated. It's possible to figure out what Unitarian Universalists of many different theological bents have to learn from the story of reliance on a particular God in whom not many of us believe. It's possible to look at modern forms of oppression, racism, sexism, heterosexism, classism, and others, and, and learn about how we must work to dismantle them, to liberate both their victims and those of us who are complicit in their perpetuation consciously or not. It's possible to look at the phenomenon of hope and how those of us who are comfortable in our power and privilege forget that there are, are those for whom hope is a necessary ingredient for survival. All of these things are possible, and I promise you I'll go down those pathways with you in years to come. I doubt we'll run out of ways to explore this powerful text. This year, however, I'd like to take the story a little more literally. For you see, even in this modern world, there are people quite literally enslaved. There are people whose labor is forced, who toil under inhuman conditions. Kimberly French, in an article for UU World, our magazine, about contemporary slavery, writes, You in all likelihood own items that were produced by slaves. Chocolate, hand-woven carpets, cotton, coffee, tea, tobacco, sugar, tomatoes, cucumbers, oranges, grains, clothing, sneakers, soccer balls, gold, diamonds, jewelry, fireworks, steel, glassware, charcoal, timber, stone, tantalum, a mineral used in laptops, pagers, personal digital assistants, and cell phones. Products in all of these industries have been found which are made with slave labor and then sold in the global market. The American anti-slavery group writes on their website that contrary to popular belief, Slavery didn't end with Abraham Lincoln in 1865. Experts estimate that today there are 27 million people enslaved around the world. It's happening in countries on all six inhabited continents. And yes, they write, that includes the United States. 
According to the site, the CIA estimates 14,000 to 17,000 victims are trafficked into the land of the free every year. Why, they ask, hasn't more been done to end a dehumanizing, universally condemned practice? One challenge, they write, is that slavery today takes on myriad subtler forms than it did during the Atlantic slave trade, including sex trafficking, debt bondage, forced domestic or agricultural labor, and chattel slavery, making it tougher to identify and eradicate. Many of the people being held in slavery today are children. The United States, or the United Nations estimates that 1.2 million children every year are victims of child trafficking. In addition, the UN says that some 250,000 children are being exploited as child soldiers in as many as 30 areas of conflict around the world. Many of the children being held are young girls, kidnapped from their homes and forced into slavery as prostitutes. I recently watched a Dateline expose on MSNBC in which prepubescent girls as young as five were being sold for sex to tourists, some of them Americans, in Cambodia. It was truly revolting. Revolting enough that the journalists sent to report on what was going on felt compelled to rescue as many of the girls as possible. Dateline interviewed some of these girls. One 14-year-old NBC News writes, who was recently freed from a brothel, says she came from an extremely poor family in the country next door, Vietnam. She says when she was walking home from school one day, she was approached by a woman offering work in a cafe. But the cafe turned out to be a brothel. With no money and no way to get home, she didn't have much of a choice and was forced into sex with grown men, many of them American. Why? Despite being illegal in every single nation on our globe, does such slavery exist? The United Nations says it is a problem that follows, quote, vulnerability exacerbated by poverty, discrimination, and social exclusion. These problems are not just on cocoa plantations in Ghana, back alleys in Phnom Penh, soccer ball factories in Bangladesh, this is a problem here in the United States as well. The poverty that exists around our globe drives people to this country in hope of a better life. And that poverty, combined with our country's ridiculous laws and practices around temporary workers and immigration, forces many of those people to rely on less than honest means to get here. Much of the modern-day slavery in this country involves undocumented workers, many of whom are forced to work on farms, never able to pay back the cost of their transport into our country. As Kimberly French wrote in her UU World article, a 2002 case that resulted in federal sentences of 10 to 15 years for three family members who contracted farm laborers from Florida to North Carolina shows how contract slavery works. She writes, in early 2001, three Miche Indians from Mexico each paid $250 to be smuggled into the United States. Penniless and stranded in an abandoned trailer with 30 others in Arizona, the three men agreed to go with a recruiter 
who promised them jobs picking oranges in Florida. For three days, they were packed in vehicles with no food, with no stops to relieve themselves. They were met in Florida by the Ramos brothers, who wrote a check to the recruiter and said each man owed him $1,000 for transportation. Anyone who tried to leave without paying would be beaten. The workers were housed in a filthy filthy converted bar, six to a room on bare mattresses. They worked 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week, under 24-hour surveillance by guards with weapons. Each week, the Ramoses deducted exorbitant fees for rent, food, work equipment, and daily transportation from the workers' wages, then claimed to credit whatever remained to their debt, The Ramoses were found to have employed thousands of undocumented workers in a similar pattern over a decade, according to Florida State University's Center for the Advancement of Human Rights. And all this so that we can drink cheaper orange juice. What can we do about these problems? First, we can ask our government to do something about it. While there are many, many things the federal government of the United States can do, there is one particular piece of legislation pertaining to this that is currently pending. The House of Representatives has before it legislation that would establish a congressional commission on the abolition of modern-day slavery. The bill is numbered H.R. 2522, and it has been referred to a committee probably to die there. We can and should demand that this bill be passed. Now, it turns out that New York's own Representative Nadler is the chairperson of the subcommittee to which that bill has been referred. So if you know anyone who lives in his district, which snakes from the Upper West Side of Manhattan through Brooklyn to Coney Island, perhaps you can ask them to give him a call. And even if you don't, perhaps you can call your congressperson and ask them to co-sponsor it Neither Nita Lowy nor John Hall has done so yet, nor have any of the representatives from Connecticut. Next, we can pay attention to where our money goes. This means shopping with a conscience, buying from companies who we know take care not to engage in slave labor. Fair trade certification, as well as some others, such as rug mark certification for carpets, require that producers certify that their products are made free of slave labor. Perhaps that next chocolate bar you buy can be a fair trade certified one. The Not For Sale campaign website also gives some tips, including this disturbing news about a major tire manufacturer. In November 2005, the International Labor Rights Fund filed a case in U.S. District Court in California against Bridgestone, alleging forced labor, the modern equivalent of slavery, on the Firestone Plantation in Harbel, Liberia. The lawsuit states, the plantation workers allege, among other things, that they remain trapped by poverty and coercion on a frozen-in-time plantation operated by Firestone in a matter identical to how the plantation was operated when it was first opened by Firestone in 1926. Perhaps we should choose other tires when next our cars need them. Finally, we can watch where we invest our money. 
The Unitarian Universalist Association has long promoted socially responsible investing and shareholder activism on issues we care about as congregations. On the issue of slavery, our denomination has joined forces with powerful investors in order to make change. For example, the UUA co-filed a resolution with the New York City Employees Retirement System asking the H.J. Hines Corporation to adopt a global code of conduct. And in response, Hines agreed in 2002 to improve auditing of its foreign contractors in order to eliminate any traces of slavery in their products. The UU World reports that other corporations are listening as well. Where do you have your money invested? What are the principles guiding your 401k? Perhaps you should take a look. As we prepare to begin the annual celebration of the biblical exodus, we pause, many of us stunned, to recognize that slavery is not a problem relegated to the past. The ancient stories of liberation still echo today. There are many across the globe who are in need, quite literally, of liberation from bondage in slavery. They are not out in the open building pyramids or picking cotton, but they are there, millions of them. May they all one day be free. Blessed be.